Hello and welcome to this edition of On The Pulse, in which CMS experts provide updates on the key developments bringing innovation and disruption to the life sciences and healthcare sector. I'm your host, Nick Beckett. Uh, today, we're deciphering the complex technologies involved in the area of digital health. I'm delighted to be joined by three of the CMS life sciences specialists who regularly advise clients in the sector. We've got Nal McAllister from the UK, Roland Vering from Germany, and Robbie Flores from Dubai. So welcome to all of you. Now, I have to say I've been very excited about this episode. I think um, it probably, to me, is probably the hottest topic uh, in the life sciences and healthcare sector at the moment. Nala and myself, we were at the uh, the JP Morgan Healthcare Conference earlier in the year. And I, I have to say there was just a, such a huge buzz around uh, digital health. Almost everyone you were talking to was talking about it. And you really feel that everyone is trying to get involved. And I think what's really interesting is it's really both sides uh, of the, the different industries, so the, the pharma and life sciences side and the tech side. Um, and so there's lots of interesting collaborations uh, that are being formed. And I think we're going to cover some of those uh, and the issues involved in a later on the pulse. Uh, and there's a, sometimes even a clash of cultures where you've got the, the, the digital side, you know, which is everyone would think of Silicon Valley and uh, disruptive, fast moving, entrepreneurial, and the health side that's more reliable and conservative and evidence based. And I think it's also, you know, digital health an area that really does cover the whole ecosystem of the life sciences and healthcare sector. So all stages from research and development through manufacture, through supply chain management to, you know, diagnosis, prevention and treatment. And just to give a few examples of some of the things that we see, uh, you know, there are there are now many apps and chatbots for diagnosis, preventing the need, perhaps, or supplementing, complementing the need for primary care in some cases. We see the use of 3D printing on, for example, most recently ventilators. Uh, remote uh, monitoring of patients, certainly in a country like China, you know, vast territories, sometimes without great healthcare in some of the rural uh, far-flung provinces, and remote monitoring of patients and elderly, you know, hugely important um, to the, uh, the to the environment. Use of blockchain, for example, in controlled drug distribution, where you've really got to keep security uh, in mind in the whole supply chain, and everyone wants to know that the product there receiving at the end is uh, is intact and not being uh, uh, you know, impacted in any way in the in the distribution. We see the use of AI in lots of different forms in diagnosis, for example, diabetic nephropathy. It's being used uh, quite uh, prominently for. And we see robotics used in a number of settings, perhaps in remote surgical procedures. And in all of these things, data is flooding everywhere. And we see that with electronic data health records. So, you know, it's a it's a vast area. Um, we could spend hours on it, um, but I think I'd like to begin with AI. And I think, again, probably the most topical thing on everyone's minds at the moment, COVID. Uh, and let's uh, let's start and talk a bit about track and trace. So maybe, Rob, do you want to kick us off on that? Yeah, so thanks, Nick. So, yeah, track and trace, very, very big um, subject at the minute. And particularly, you know, globally, there's been a lot of discussion about the use of, of AI for track and trace. But in the UAE, very, very recently, um, we have just begun reopening our borders on the basis of a use of AI and specific track and tracing apps, which will allow individuals to actually come in. And what they are doing with respect to that is they are requiring everyone to download an app called Al Hassan. And what Al Hassan does is that it provides each individual with a specific QR code. 
and the government have been very upfront about the fact that this will be used to trace your movements, to trace uh, individual testing results. Now, tourists coming into the region as well will have to be tested. They will also have to download the app. And as a result, you know, they are extremely upfront and very forthright and very, I think, ahead of the game in terms of how quickly this has been deployed and how universally this has been deployed and how also the enforcement is being um, undertaken. So it's a very heavy fine for individuals either within the UAE or coming into the UAE who don't have the app on their phone to enable this track and tracing to occur. And a sort of a live action example of what's going on is that there has been a recent outbreak noted in Abu Dhabi, our capital city, as a result of a number of sort of hits on the app. And similar to what's happening in Beijing, Nick, which I'm sure you might be aware of, is that they've actually put Abu Dhabi on a full lockdown. So based on the feedback from this app and also some temperature checking and scanning, they've actually refused entry or exit from an entire city on the basis of the use of this track and trace app. So really using the app to, to lock down sort of localized outbreaks and make sure that doesn't occur. The other big use of AI has been in imagery. So um, both the major international airports here have said very clearly that they will be tracking individuals using temperature-related imagery and AI to make sure people aren't obviously showing signs of COVID-19. And again, those results will be broadcast into the wider network and they will be checking individuals and localized outbreaks. That is also being um, rolled out to malls and a number of other areas that are sort of tourist friendly or where people will congregate. So yeah, quite a sophisticated use of, of AI and apps to really make sure that, that COVID is, is very much kept under control. And I think the use of that is really has what's been allowed um, the UAE to say that it's open for business and it can welcome tourists back in. So in Singapore, um, just sort of taking up that theme, the, the government technology agency and the Ministry of Health have together developed a mobile app that they call Trace Together, which also uses Bluetooth um, to track proximity uh, to other people who've got the app. Um, and then it alerts the people who come into contact with someone who's tested positive or who's at risk of carrying the coronavirus. Um, and in Singapore, the app's been downloaded at least 1.4 million times, uh, according to their website, which unfortunately, from the UK's point of view, contrasts um, rather negatively. Um, the UK has had a bit of a less successful time attempting to introduce a track and trace app. Um, our NHS introduced uh, a contact tracing app. It used Bluetooth low energy handshakes to register proximity events between the smartphone users that had the app. Um, the app was designed to take into account factors like the duration of the contact event and the distances between the devices, and then fed data into an algorithm, um, which was going to estimate infection risk and to prompt notifications. Unfortunately, uh, it seems that the app that's been developed in the UK uh, was pretty poor at judging distance and duration. Uh, but more importantly, because Apple weren't willing to compromise on their um, privacy norms, uh, it couldn't recognise iPhones. So last week, the government announced that it was withdrawing it. Uh, and in fact, it's not expected now that a replacement is going to be available for some months, um, which in the UK's point uh, is a pretty significant blow to our attempts to control the virus. Yeah, interesting to hear. I mean, in, in Germany, we had the discussion that 
Uh, also, it took it took quite a long time until um, a Corona warning app, as they call it, was introduced. But some days ago, it was finally. And the challenge um, uh, in face of the um, high uh, standards of data protection was to get this um, effectivity of the device and the, the, the app combined with the high data protection regulation uh, requirements. And that's why the German government then uh, chose a decentralized approach. So it's not connected on a um, central server, which was the initial idea. Um, but now it's also on, on Bluetooth technology and the app, so um, saves data and then com compares um, whether you've been in contact, in close contact with another person using this app. Um, so we'll see how effective this actually is. Um, but uh, according to the German government, it's uh, supposed to be one of the um, yeah, best uh, Corona warning apps in the world, they say. Um, and uh, because it, apparently it's a very good combination of data security, of effectivity, and also energy saving, which was one of the, the, the big um, requirements apparently as well. So it will be interesting to see how this then um, um, translates into, into reality. If we talk about other countries, Australia also has an app, it's called COVID Safe, um, works when two devices um, with the downloaded app are in close contact to each other. And then health officials are actually permitted to view this data, this contact information, which, for instance, in Germany would, would certainly pose an issue in terms of data protection. And then finally, China has also launched an app um, that enables the user to check whether they've been at risk of catching the virus by a close contact detector. And um, the app actually tells users if they've been in close proximity to persons confirmed or suspected of having the virus. So there again, um, the attempt to, to actually um, yeah, um, see the chain of the virus going um, between persons um, connecting each other. Yeah, I mean, so sort of just what's been raised, it's, I think it's just really interesting how valuable um, a source of data the smartphone is now becoming, you know, within the, within the healthcare and for medical checks. We talked about track and trace apps. You know, the number of smart users globally is, is such a huge amount. I think it's, you know, close to sort of four billion. Um, and obviously in, our, in my region, the Middle East, I mean, you know, the smartphone penetration is, is just astonishing. So it's allowed, you know, track and trace apps and, and e-health and, and med health devices to just take a huge step forward. Because if you think about, you know, what you now track on your smartphone app, even before COVID, you know, people track their exercise, people track what they eat, uh, how we work, um, who you're in touch with, who you message. Um, and also AI can run on smartphones, you know, particularly comfortably, even where there's no actual network. So it's it, the smartphone we carry in our pocket is almost this ongoing record of, of who we are and what we do and how healthy we are and, and the value of that data to enable all sorts of companies to analyze, you know, our health and also our mental health, not just physical health, I think is just a sort of a quantum leap forward. Um, there's a company called Ginger.io um, that used sort of the frequency that which, at which you contact individuals to assess, you know, the potential state of your mental health. So it just shows how valuable not just track and trace apps are, but just smartphones are in general. Um, to advancing sort of medical research and allowing individuals to to sort of report what it is that they're doing and what it is that might become an issue that organisations can take a look at. Yeah, I think in in addition to uh, track and trace, I mean the other 
obvious um, COVID-related hot topic is, you know, the search and the urgent need for a vaccine. Um, and I wonder to what extent AI is playing a role uh, in in the, the search. Niall, any uh, experience in that area? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I find this fascinating because I think this is a kind of opportunity. It's, it's like a real live test lab uh, for seeing how AI-driven modelling can be used um, in, in drug discovery and, and actually finding a vaccine for COVID-19. Um, and if you take DeepMind's AlphaFold, they're using that to model um, the physical and molecular structure of the virus. And that's to help design vaccines that will, in theory, at least mimic the, the key parts of the virus and therefore trigger a protective immune response in, in the victims. Uh, at the University of Cambridge, uh, we have researchers using machine learning to analyse COVID-19 patients' information. Um, and they think that will help them predict the potential risk of patients developing more serious disease and therefore potentially needing more specialist equipment and resources. Um, th there's been a lot of activity uh, in interrogating existing drugs and molecular uh, libraries to see whether they would be effective against the virus. Uh, and there are some UK companies doing work in this field uh, that are getting a fair bit of attention at the moment. Perhaps the best known is, is one of our unicorn tech companies called Benevolent AI. Uh, it has something called Knowledge Graph, and essentially that consists of, of a large repository of medical information and scientific literature that's been extracted by machine learning. They use that to explore much more quickly than uh, any number of human experts could existing medicines that could potentially be used in clinical trials for a vaccine. So potentially repurposing existing medicines. Um, and, and doing that, Benevolent AI was able to alert Eli Lilly uh, to the fact that baricitinib, uh, which is an oral drug that Eli Lilly markets uh, to treat rheumatoid arthritis, could be a potential candidate. And Eli Lilly then took that into their own lab, labs, uh, tested it, and have now set up a clinical trial to see whether it might be effective. So that was that got a lot of news uh, early on, I think, relatively early on in the, uh, the outbreak here. Uh, there's another company called Excentia. It's collaborated with Calibre, which is the drug development division of Scripps Research. And it has 15,000 clinically ready molecules. The other participant uh, in the collaboration is Diamond Light Source, which operates uh, a synchrotron facility near Oxford in the UK. Uh, so using Calibre's molecules, and that includes existing drugs in the market, Excentia is screening the molecule collection through its own version of the knowledge graph uh, and using AI against key drug targets uh, to search first for existing drugs that can be repurposed, but then to design more effective molecules to take on the virus. Uh, and a final example is another Cambridge-based biotech called Helix. Um, it has, again, an AI knowledge graph, and it calls it HealNet. And it does something different. It's analysing pairs or triplets of drugs to search for combination therapies, which, of course, is likely to be a much more effective way of controlling the virus. Uh, and HealNet's AI-driven analysis of biomedical data attempts to predict drug combinations that are most likely to succeed. I think... Um, the point that you just made, most likely to succeed in predicting um, set results, I think that's one of the key points where AI really comes in and where it, it especially in these times with, with the COVID virus, it can save years of development. So 
um, by analyzing data, by bringing things together, by um, yeah, helping to discover new attempts, it's really the time-saving aspect that that AI can can bring in. And one example is in Australia, um, researchers from the Flinders University in Adelaide, they use AI to ac accelerate the development of a vaccine um, considerably by exploiting latest technologies such as um, AI, of course, and others, machine learning and computer models that can actually um, um, help uh, modelize and, and um, yeah, visualize human receptors and uh, in order to identify how the virus was actually then infecting the human cell, which then again can um, help in developing a vaccine, which they are close to, at least in theory and in their models, to um, to succeed on. And this had, has actually um, saved um, years of uh, development that otherwise would have been possible. And in Germany, we also have many research activities going on at universities, at institutions, and as com in companies such as CureVac, and virtually all of them rely to a certain degree, to one degree or another, on AI technology, on data mining in order to um, get the yeah, the combination that hopefully one day will save us all. And um, therefore, um, it's an, a hugely important area of AI at the moment. And what about in, in addition to, um, you know, use of AI in research and development and discovery, uh, what about the use of AI in diagnosis or in classification of disease? Are we seeing much of that yet? So South Korea has actually been using AI to help in the diagnosis and classification of COVID-19 patients. So there is a center called the um, South Korean Center for Disease Control and Prevention, and they established a system which can categorize confirmed COVID-19 cases into four categories, like um, very mild, moderate, severe, or very severe. And this was then made possible by using an algorithm for identifying abnormal findings on chest x-rays. So basically analyzing x-rays and then seeing how is this different, differing from normal kind of x-rays and showing abnormal signs. So especially for a disease that we do not yet know so well, um, this data, um, bringing together this data and analyzing it for abnormalities has proven very efficient in categorizing patients and then of course after that in um, providing them the um, care they need. And uh, similarly in China, a study was conducted looking at a deep learning model. So basically using a COVID-19 detection neural network, which, which was then um, de developed to perform this very task in order to learn about the, the disease, how it's affecting the human body and where it's actually, um, so to speak, working in the body. Uh, also in order to um, provide the correct care um, to the patients and um, to develop uh, also medicine in order to help them. So um, basically um, also in the detection and differentiation of patients and the way they are going to experience the virus, um, AI is a very important um, element uh, to bring this uh, further and help um, combating the virus.
So, yeah, uh, just picking up Roland's point, I mean, it's we've done a lot as well on the CT side of things here in the UAE. Um, a CT container was set up by three individual companies. The idea being that you could sort of have CT scans and CT scan results analyzed very, very quickly to enable diagnosis. And it also enabled um, this to be done outside of a hospital environment. So it meant that people with potential cases could go and get checked. Um, and obviously that they weren't then potentially infecting or being infected by other individuals. The other very interesting use of AI has been through blood imagery. So there's been a company in um, Abu Dhabi in particular that have been doing very sophisticated photo analysis of blood samples of patients and then using AI to track the presence of the virus in those blood samples. And that has enabled an extremely quick diagnosis uh, of potential individuals um, with the disease. And then, of course, linking in with the track and trace app, it has meant that individuals have been able to be identified very quickly, locked down, isolated to prevent the broader spread of the virus. So a really good example of AIs and the speed of AI to really speed up diagnosis and help contain the virus. I mean, I think we've, you know, you've given a, a really good uh, range of examples of how AI has been used, you know, in the context of COVID. I think, obviously, as lawyers, um, from a from a legal perspective, there are there are lots of unanswered questions or questions that are are being grappled with. And CMS put out a report on AI in the life sciences sector, and I think looking at many of those issues, and it really, to me, it is sort of genuine thought leadership because because there are no answers. Um, and it's one of those areas with new technology where the law is constantly, almost inevitably, going to be trying to play catch up. Um, and I think in that report, you know, there's there's clearly even a lack of clarity on the definition of what AI is and how it is defined in different jurisdictions. Uh, there are, you know, serious concerns that one reads about, you know, hotly really in the, in the, in the newspapers about data privacy the use of some of these technologies, there's the risk of cyber attacks, cyber, cyber breaches, you know, issues of ownership of IP, uh, and questions on liability as well, even liability of the of the AI, of the machine, or, or the software itself. So a lot of uh, legal questions, and I think one of the issues is there isn't, you know, as is quite commonly the case, no uh, global framework to address these. So how does you know how's Europe for a start you know looking at the regulation of these use use of AI uh, Nile maybe yeah um, the, I think in in the last um, sort of six to twelve months there's been a lot of um, consultation papers and the like coming out of the European Commission on this subject um, so it's clearly something that they're looking at very heavily at the moment um, and, and as you say digital technology is a rapidly changing field. And as a result, uh, I think a lot of issues have arisen and we've sort of seen them over the past six to 12 months um, around whether current legislation is actually sufficient to deal with it. Um, there's one paper in particular that is of particular that, that is of interest. I think um, the EC issued a white paper in February called Artificial Intelligence, a European Approach to Excellence and Trust. Uh, and that was accompanied with a report on the safety implications, safety and liability implications of AI, the Internet of Things and robotics. Uh, and the white paper sets out uh, the Commission's comprehensive proposal for regulation of AI, which serves as a first step to beginning the legislative process uh, within the EU. 
Uh, and the next step will be for draft legislation, uh, which is expected later in this year. So allied to that, uh, the Commission launched a broad consultation of member states, uh, which ended uh, in the middle of May on its proposals for a European approach to AI uh, on the safety and liability framework. And it focused on the means to boost investments in research and innovation uh, to enhance development of skills and to support the uptake of AI by SMEs, small, medium enterprise and medium sized enterprises. Um, the white paper and, and the report uh, don't themselves set out a specific legal framework uh, because obviously it's intended to inform the consultation that, that ran along parallel with it. Uh, but they do acknowledge that there is a lack of clarity at the moment, uh, both in the field of law, but also around the science, as you say, in terms of what actually is AI, for example. So the conclusion they've reached so far uh, is that as well as adjusting existing legislation, it's likely that we will need new legislation uh, specifically for AI in order to make the EU legal framework fit both as of today, but also looking forward uh, and, and anticipating the sort of technological and commercial developments to come. Yeah, indeed. And this um, consultation process is really um, very important and interesting, as you just uh, mentioned, Niall. Um, at the horizon, there's a new legislation then um, likely to be um, at one point um, adopted. So the European, European Commission actually wants to get to know by its consultation process several um, aspects. I want to clarify these further. So specifically, whether there should be a new separate legislation focused on AI to actually um, address and ensure that the two principles that the European Commission put first, which is trust and excellence, are actually upheld, whilst, of course, also promoting the potential of AI and not um, reducing it. Then educating, training the workforce and, and people around um, in, in, in the industry and in, in service industry in order to actually make use of AI in a, in a good manner. Encouraging both public and private investments in research, in innovation and development to form um, better um, AI applications. And basically then also um, protecting the fundamental rights such as privacy. So bringing all this together and um, how this is best balanced, that will be the, the aim um, of the consultation process and the analysis of the results that lie before us. So basically, the, the Commission recognized that the EU uh, legislative framework so far relating to AI, because we do not have a specific framework, could be improved to address certain areas and uh, certain areas of um, yeah, and clarity where, where where questions arise, how this uh, governed, Nick, you mentioned liability issues, you mentioned who is the owner of the data, who's the owner of the AI. So a couple of points. There's a lack of transparency in AI applications to some extent, so where, which makes it difficult to identify um, possible legal breaches. So is it actually the, the producer, the manufacturer, the producer, the software developer, or the person that applied the AI um, who should be held liable. So this is not clear. Then uh, the scope of the existing EU legislation, um, talking about medical device regulation, is this AI application a medical device or not? 
And um, is standalone software actually subject to the product liability directive? Because it's a software and it's not a tangible product, where which is uh, normally um, the scope of application of the product liability directive. Then what happens if the functionality of AI systems change? So, I mean, um, a key development aspect of AI is that it learns um, on its own. So it's a learning process. It's an evolving process. So what happens then? What happens about the post-market surveillance? And then um, allocation of responsibility in the supply chain. What happens if the program was developed in a wrong way or in a defective way? And so who's liable at the end of the day? So that's, I think, um, these are very important um, key um, issues that are going to be addressed. And um, basically, the um, commission uh, sees the need to address them, sees the need to change it. And we'll see um, how the future and the specific regulatory framework um, will look like in a couple of months' time um, uh, when we will see the first results of this consultation analysis coming out. This does suggest, Roland, that under the current EU liability legislation and national as well, um, that, that these areas of uncertainty are going to cause difficulty for people. Exactly. That's the... Um, the, the position of the um, EC and and therefore the Commission actually proposes to to develop further these aspects and to to get more clarity in order for for the underlying purpose to promote AI but in a in a more kind of a channeled way. So the bottom line is that there needs to be new uh, new law new regulation um, and what what can we expect, Roland? You know what would the the likely approach to it be taken by the European Commission? Uh, so basically what the Commission proposes is to adopt a context-specific and risk-based approach in order to narrow the scope of the regulatory framework actually to those areas where it's, if I may say, so needed most. So um, it shall not be excessively prescriptive. On the other hand, it shall um, be sufficiently um, effective in order to protect the rights and also to, um, as we said, um, enable um, compensation. So therefore, the Commission proposes to distinguish between different AI applications and um, very um, grosso modo, um, the Commission suggests to have low risk and high risk areas. And if your AI application is used or developed in a high risk area, then it will fall into a newly um, amended regulatory framework and be subject to certain mandatory requirements. So the big question then would be, am I in a high-risk environment or not? And there are basically two criteria. One is, uh, is AI used in a critical sector, which, um, for instance, would be energy, uh, healthcare, life sciences, transport, um, so areas which have a very um, significant impact to on society. And um, is it then used in a manner that leads to a significant risk? If you think about healthcare and life sciences, if uh, AI doesn't work properly, um, can there be fatal um, results um, with people suffering illness or even death? So therefore, um, this would then determine whether the AI is subject to a stricter regime that, than today, um, or not. Yeah, it's, it, it's a really interesting point because obviously here in the Middle East, we're sort of interested onlookers about what sort of the Euro, uh, EC and, and the 
and various other countries are saying. Um, and obviously, with a lot of the, the AI application going on here, um, you know, a lot of the technology companies are, are looking at the US approach. And that's been quite critical of what the EC have done with the, this concept of the sort of the two buckets, the, the high risk and the low risk. Um, I think that the, the chief technical officer of the US, Michael Kratzios, just said it was overly simplistic and, and a little bit unhelpful. And I think what the US has sort of tried to do is, is create this kind of spectrum approach that allows kind of lighter regulation on a, on a scale. So really saying that rather than looking at something as being simply high risk or low risk, looking at the actual use and the sector specific context and the level of AI involved. And I think they've given the example of sort of the use of drones and automated vehicles, as opposed to obviously the use of AI for something as, as Roland, you rightly mentioned in, you know, in the course of medicine. So rather than simply bucketing it as high risk and low risk, they they like to think that we should scale this up. So it'll be interesting to see if there's if that kind of approach is followed here. I mean, I think we've already got quite a light regulatory approach when it comes to autonomous vehicles. Um, but it's a really interesting debate as to how you how you start to factor the different uses of AI. Yeah, indeed, and that's a very valid point. And um, we see that a lot of comments are coming in, and of course. Um, that also on an international scale, um, other countries are looking at what the EC does, the, the Commission does, and the EU do, and the member states do, and how it how it develops further. So, um, of course, the white paper is also a first step, and it lays the foundation of the legislative development. Um, um, certain factors are coming in and are analyzed. So. Um, and also the, the commission states that uh, apart from the sector, and this goes a little bit into the direction of what you just mentioned, that the actual use and the actual exposure of um, certain um, yeah, um, persons and, 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 and risk um, are also important in order to classify whether you are high risk. So in other words, even if it's an area that normally would not qualify as high risk, if the actual use of the individual um, AI application can cause serious harm, then it could also uh, fall under the high-risk um, approach, which is a developing um, area at the moment, so we have to see. And what is interesting in this context is the Committee on the Legal Affairs of the European Parliament, the Parliament, of course, being a very important stakeholder in this area as well, the jury, has also recently published a report in, uh, on AI, highlighting the need for an agreed definition of AI that is flexible um, and uh, addressing the difficulties caused by the lack of clarity of definition. So it goes into this uh, direction of saying, okay, what, what is actually AI and what exactly is the use of it? It's one of those areas, isn't it, that the, the technology is moving so quickly and the developments are happening so fast is that, you know, how do you legislate for something that is not only going to deal with, you know, what is happening now, but also how is that going to encompass the way new technologies are developed and how AI advances over the next few years? So I think that's going to be a really, really interesting challenge. And of course, us as lawyers, we're going to have a, a lot of fun with that, I think, as we negotiate, you know, what the concept of AI means in, in different agreements and, and in different contexts. Yeah, I, I agree. And it's, of course, important then to see whether it fits into the concrete context and and what the appropriate regulation and what the appropriate uh, safety um, uh, safeguards um, are. 
And in this context, um, well, uh, we will have to see whether it's a sector-based approach, whether it's a risk-based approach. There are different approaches, different criteria um, flying around at the moment. And the, in the URI report, coming back to that, um, as for the types of the mandatory legal requirements that go with that, um, it's, it states that um, high-risk applications should, once you have defined them, um, should be subject to certain um, additional requirements. And um, these could include, um, for instance, um, what about the training data? How are the, are the AI machines trained? So very important coming to that also the, regarding the bias of data, data keeping, so record keeping in order to, to enable um, tracking if there are defects going on, um, the robustness of the data, the accuracy of the data, human oversight and um, specific requirements for biometric identification once the AI um, application is used. Okay, so there's um, there's some mandatory requirements um, that are, are likely to be imposed, and I guess the the corollary question would be, well, to, to whom are those requirements addressed? I.e., who, who is responsible? Yeah, uh, the, the the white paper put forward two issues here. Um, first of all, how obligations should be distributed among the various economic operators who are involved in the life cycle of an AI system, and obviously that brings to mind the developer and, and the deployer, uh, but it can include others as well. So the producer or an importer or the service provider uh, could all be caught by that. And the second issue that um, it, it covered was the geographic scope of the legislative intervention. Uh, and taking the first of these then, um, the white paper uh, proposed that each legal requirement in the future regulatory framework would be directed to uh, as it described it, the actors who are best placed to address any potential risks. And the reason for that description uh, was that while developers clearly are best placed to address risks at or arising from the development phase, uh, their ability to control risks later in the use phase would obviously be much more limited. Uh, and the obligation one would expect would probably move uh, to the deployer at that stage. Um, but Bear in mind that this wouldn't affect which party should be liable for any damage caused. Uh, and then the second issue of geographical scope, um, the white paper is pretty clear uh, that the requirements would be applicable to all relevant economic operators providing AI products or services in the EU uh, without regard to whether or not they're actually based in the EU. What the EC is actually suggesting, um, as Nas actually said, is that you have this sort of prior assessment of the AI and it's got to pass all these sort of mandatory requirements in terms of what it does and how it can perform um, and what it can do the same way you would normally have a sort of a factory testing piece with a piece of software. But then because AI is so unique, because it learns, because it develops, because the data is fed into it, and unlike other software, you, what the EC is saying is that you're going to have to have a sort of mandatory ongoing assessment of the use of the AI, what it's doing, how it's developing and what it's being used for. So, you know, for, for us as lawyers, it's and, and I guess for consumers, developers, it's a completely new situation where you don't just have, you know, a, a factory test, a deployment and then off you go. It's a case of that this is going to have to be continually assessed and reviewed and approved 
because it's you know it's such a highly functioning, highly developing piece of software. It's it's a very very unique situation. Yeah, indeed, and you can you can argue that conformity assessments as such are family, a familiar aspect of EU product safety regulation or medical devices regulation. So, for instance, the testing of a product to ensure that it's um, that it's safe. Um, needs to be done and uh, certain safety requirements need to be met or for medical devices, for the CE certification, certain tests need to be passed before it's placed on the market. So um, in, a, in a way, um, this uh, idea of a conformity assessment proposal is not surprising. On the other hand, of course, one could argue, well, whether if it's a medical device, why should an additional form of conformity assessment be necessary um, if within the CE marking um, certification process, also the software has been analyzed. But this is, of course, um, an ongoing discussion. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And I think sort of the International Standards Organization have, have sort of suggested something similar there. Um, so the two seem to be aligned, but it, it is quite a unique sort of issue, particularly in the medical devices field, because you think about, you know, the potential risks and the liability that, you know, there has to be some sort of uniform standards around how this is tested, how this is approved, and then how this is assessed on an ongoing basis. So really interesting challenge. Yeah, I agree. And there the um, commission really sets out um, this the specific issue uh, related to AI, as you also just mentioned. Rob, um, that it's developing further. So once you assess it, it's not the end of the story. Um, it's not a static product, but it's developing further. So the, the question of how we can rely on prior conformity assessments and then developing it further. So um, an evolving system, a learning system, and um, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll see how it translates into the legislative framework uh, in order to make sure that then this product is um, assessed throughout the system's lifetime. So it's really interesting. I mean, I think there's there's different approaches then to the regulation. The uh, EU white paper is just obviously a first step in a, in a process and the classification of sort of high risk and non-high risk um, uh, seem to be too simplistic to the US. And I think in terms of conformity assessments, uh, in addition to the need to do those before launch, Obviously, there's consideration that there may be a need to do those throughout the lifetime of a product. So, um, you know, I think there's a, a long way to go still, as Roland says. It's not the end of the story. And much like our discussions, uh, you know, in these, in these times and on this topic, we'll come back to look in the second part of this episode on uh, the practical uses of AI and digital technologies. So thank you for joining us for this edition of On The Pulse. We hope you found our discussions to be thought-provoking and insightful. If you'd like to discuss any of the topics covered, please do get in touch. To find out more about On The Pulse and CMS's Global Life Sciences and Healthcare Group, visit cms.law. Audio versions of On The Pulse are available through your usual podcast store. Mm -hmm.